for folks that are interested and that want to learn, what's the best way to go about it? Do we recommend a single language? Is it, is it, is it Q? Is it, is it, is it J? Is it APL? That's a different episode, Connor. Oh, is it? (laughs) Array languages face off. There can be only one. Welcome to the second episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor. I'll be your host for this episode and, as I said before, all following episodes. Um, First, we just want to say thank you so much to all of the folks that have provided feedback. We've had an overwhelming amount of positive feedback and folks that have just been saying that they're super excited about the podcast and are looking forward to more episodes. So it's super encouraging on our end when we get that feedback. And I think Bob, when we go around and do our brief introductions, might say a little bit more about that. And uh, then we'll hop into our episode, which is going to be talking about iteration versus loops and how you can get started in learning the array programming languages. And we'll also have a short announcement before we do that. Um, We're going to briefly introduce ourselves. We'll start with Stephen, then go to Bob, and then go to Rich. Hey, I'm Stephen Taylor. I've been an APL developer for decades. And for the last five years, I've been the KX librarian in charge of documenting the Q language. And I'm Bob Terrio, and I'm a J enthusiast. I've been playing around with J for about the last 19 years. I do not program professionally, but I'm certainly interested in the language. And by the way, just to add one more thing, we have 1,593 subscribers, which is substantially more than our first episode's estimates, which I think Connor said he'd be happy if we had anybody. Well, we have 1,593 more than that. Oh, and I'm Richard Park. Uh, been working for the APL vendor dialogue for, I don't know, two and a half years, maybe. Um, I'm mainly focused on training, teaching people APL, and also a little bit of evangelism, spreading the word of APL outside of those circles. And as mentioned earlier, my name's Connor Hookstra. Um, I am your resident non-APLer. I'm a professional C++ developer, uh, but I'm a huge APL enthusiast and also interested in learning about the other languages, J, K, Q. Uh, so I'm here to ask the questions and hopefully learn just as much as the listeners. So uh, before we hop into the episode, I'll kick it over to Bob, who's got a short announcement. Yeah, kind of, well, sad news this week. Um, it turned out, and I heard this through a, a post of uh, Roger Huey's, um, Lawrence Breed, Lawrence Moser Breed passed away um, May 16th. Now, for those of you who know about Larry Breed, um, I didn't know Larry Breed. So what I'm putting together is is from Roger's uh, email and also uh, his Wikipedia site. But having said I didn't know Larry Breed, I wish I knew Larry Breed. And the reason is Larry Breed was one of the original implementers of APL. When it went from being a notation to actually implemented on a computer language, it was uh, Larry Breed and Philip S. Abrams who put it together for the first time. Uh, the other, this is where it starts to get interesting. Before he did this, as an undergraduate at Stanford University, he created the first computer animation language and system and used it at Stanford football halftimes to coordinate images produced by 100 foot by 100 foot arrays of fans holding up colored cards. So before he was even writing APL, he was already working arrays and stands. So it, it just, and it sort of, it goes on from there. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool about him was his management style. Um, Jim Brown, who I think worked with for him, uh, was talking about Larry. He says, in 1969, he got a summer position from the APL group at IBM Yorkton Research 
Due to an administrative error, the summer job was never terminated and lasted three years. And then Jim Brown also says that uh, Larry is pretty much responsible for my APL career. He was my first manager at Yorkton Research, although I didn't know he was a manager until the exit interview. He messed up the termination and I just kept working from Syracuse. Uh, so he's kind of got my management style, which is barely. Um, and then after he retired, done all this stuff. And after, oh, and by the way, he won the Grace Hopper Award. Um, you know, because that's just something you do when you invent this kind of stuff. Um, when he retired, he got involved with Burning Man under the player name of Ember. He was one of the copy editors for the Black, Black Rock Gazette, which became the Black Rock Beacon. He, he was, in fact, one of the sculptures that he, um, he created was called Chaotic. And it was one of the, along with the actual Burning Man, it was one of the longest lasting sculptures at Burning Man Festival. So, um, and I guess to wrap it up using, oh, Roger, uh, Roger also said, um, and this is Roger saying this, Larry's programming skills are the stuff of legend. And if Roger says that his programming skills are the stuff of legend, they are the stuff of legend. Um, and Roger wraps up saying, yes, APL, in a parentheses, I am including Jay, has quite a character set, as in what a bunch of characters. So, um, uh, cheers to Larry Breed, a life well lived. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, and I also did not personally know Larry, but uh, I'm uh, somewhat of a programming language historian, and I've spent a lot of time studying the, the history of all of the array programming languages. And it's uh, it's really clear that I think the APL and array programming language community at large has a lot to be thankful for. Um, uh, I don't think I don't think. APL and, and these languages would be where they are today if it weren't for Larry. So, um, But transitioning uh, to our topic for today. So I think we'll, we'll let Stephen start because this was, I think, initially um, your idea, Stephen, talking about uh, the difference between sort of languages where you iterate versus languages like the array programming uh, paradigm languages where you don't typically iterate. Uh, you don't have looping mechanisms or you have alternatives for them. So I'll just let you, you take it away and we'll go from there. Thanks, Connor. We were talking in the last episode about what it is that distinguishes the array languages that, that we're talking about here. And we geniuses have managed to come up with, it was arrays. I can't remember how long it took us to get there, but we got that um, it was arrays. Uh, and in the time since then, I've been thinking, well, it's not an entirely satisfactory answer. We could maybe do better than that. Uh, it's not even that distinctive an answer because when APL was first designed, arguably it was the only language which took this, anything like its approach to arrays or, or treated them as first-class objects. Um, but now you go to pretty much any any language, most of them have got some way of dealing with arrays. So somebody coming into the Iverson array languages could reasonably say, so what's the big deal about arrays? And thinking about that um, led me to, well, it's not just the arrays. It's the way in which they interact with the primitives and the way that they iterate. So if you come into this conversation from the outside, you'll hear fairly early on, we don't write loops. <laughs> and it's easy to miss how much we don't write loops. 
And I guess that's the the burden of what I'm, I'm proposing here is the iteration that you do in an array language is buried so deeply into the language and new coders or people coming into the languages for the first time, I think miss that. I think it takes a while to get into it. Uh, I often see people who are beginning in these in Q or in APL take um, some expression which works on a simple a single object and say, so I'm now going to apply this to a whole list of them. And they take the expression and they, in APL, you use an each operator. In Q, you'd use an each iterator. You basically each it over the, you know, we call that a map in other languages now. So it doesn't look like a big deal, but it looks like at first, hey, Ma, I'm programming without loops. Look, no hands, no for loops, no counters. I'm using an each expression. And if you're lucky, if you're the newbie and if you're lucky, somebody with more experience is going to come along and just run a pencil through the each. In APL, the each is one character. It might be one character in Q. And you get to see the primitives in your expression already do the iteration. You didn't need to put the iterator in there. And some of those primitives, um, which we call in some of the languages atomic primitives, will just keep doing that iteration all the way down until they find atomic, you know, single integers or single characters. The first time I began to work up to this and that it applies not, this is relevant not only to applying functions to data, but also to indexing was when somebody took a Boolean matrix and just used it to index a two character vector. And suddenly I had a, um, I, I, I had a, um, a chart. No loop, no function, nothing at all. It just indexed. So using a an array to index into the vector got me uh, an array. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> way over over my head here. So uh, that's what I I wanted to propose as our second distinguishing feature of the Iverson array languages, that we have iteration which is mostly handled either atomic or with near atomic iteration in the in the primitives and then very very concisely with um, what we call adverbs or operators or iterators um, usually a single character and only if you're absolutely desperate would you use a loop expression yeah i um i had a huge grin on my face when you said uh we don't like loops um and probably to a certain percentage of our listeners that are C++ devs and might be listening because of a tweet that I sent out, um, they'll know the anecdote that I'm about to tell. But uh, there's a very, very popular expression that was popularized by Sean Parent, who's a, a principal scientist at Adobe, very senior, um, sort of a luminary of the C++ community. And he proposes that the, you know, the one thing that you should do to improve the quality of your C++ code is to avoid raw loops. And, and so the, the anecdotal phrase that he has is no raw loops. Uh, and it's not to say that you shouldn't use loops in your code, but if, if you've got you know, a 50 line piece of code and in that 50 lines, there's a 10 line loop, odds are that that loop 
is an algorithm. And you can replace that with a better named function, maybe something from a library, a standard library or a third party library. And uh, this has become like a huge part of my philosophy. And as I was learning about APL and J&Q, I stumbled across a website called www.nsl.com. And I was like, NSL, what does that stand for? And sure enough, I find out that it stands for no stinking loops. And I almost fell off my chair because I was like, wait a second, like I'm not I'm not an array programming uh, programmer. Uh, I'm coming from C++ land. And uh, like Sean Parent is like one of my my heroes. I look up to him. Uh, he's, he's got a lot of great stuff to teach. And then I come over to this community and you have a whole website dedicated uh, to no stinking loops. And it's a bunch of examples of how, you know, you can solve these problems without any loops. Um, anyways, so th- there's, there's like a dotted line between. Uh, the C++ community and this sort of no raw loops movement and the array programming uh, languages, which I just, I just think is like, I thought it was the best thing in the world. Um. Yeah. I've been uh, thinking about these sorts of ideas recently, the sort of distinguishing features of APL. Um, And I started to think about, uh, I guess the types of things you learn when you start learning to program and, you're, you start by building up these loopy solutions and then after a while you're doing more complex problems. So your loopy solutions get really long and unwieldy. You don't want to copy and paste that code everywhere. So then you learn abstraction, which is sort of hiding away all those nasty details under a name and then you can refer to the name. But then after a while, maybe you get this thing that was sort of in the Iversonian languages all along where you find you're spotting patterns of you're doing very similar things in lots of different contexts. and maybe the way that APLs sort of abstract those patterns away into those select primitives is a different kind of abstraction to like what's done in those other traditional languages where you have a bespoke solution to one very specific thing. Whereas here we're saying, oh, you're doing the same sorts of things all over the place in lots of different places. Um, I mean, maybe that's what some of the C++ standard library algorithms are hinting to in this idea of no raw loops that actually you don't need to get too complicated with it. And actually the key thing I think is the language takes care of a lot of that complication that you would need to put in if you were writing a loop. There's something there that's going to do the same things, but it's already been made performant. It's already been debugged. It's already ready to go. You just have to know the right things to hit to make it work for you. And that's a much easier way into what's going on than having to start from scratch and writing all your iterators and everything. And it makes the language a lot cleaner. And one of the other interesting things I found, um, one of the areas I learned about J was J for C programmers, which Henry Rich wrote, excellent book. Um, And uh, he, I think he's got six or seven different types of loops. So there's loops like if you were adding two arrays and the, the, the shapes matched, there's a loop to match each single you know, item in those arrays and come up with an array of the same shape, which is the sum of those individual um, integers. There's the loop, which is like a partition loop where it breaks everything down into different lengths, depending on, on what you've got as your, your original noun, the original argument you're working with. So if you had something that was 100 characters long and you were cutting based on spaces, you might break it into seven or eight irregularly shaped. Well, that's a different type of a loop. And there's a loop that will do that within the array languages as well. So your loops are sort of almost like mental concepts. And in, in some strange ways, 
it's forced me to think more deeply about loops because I don't use them. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I I think you know, and this I'll I'll, I'll pose this as a question to get um, all of your answers on because I'm I'm curious. But um, I, I think one of the the primary reasons to prefer algorithms, or you know, if you're in an array programming language, a primitive um, to a for loop is that it's more readable. You're communicating more to the reader of the code. Uh, you can have two very similar pieces of code in C++, one that's doing a, a countif reduction where it's just counting the number of elements that match some predicate, um, or you could be doing some sort of any of where you're just trying to see, is there a single element that matches this? One can be sort of short-circuited, one can't. Um, and if you look at the the code for each of them, they're very very similar. It's it's just you know a couple of ones got a, a break in their if statement, the other one doesn't. Um, so it's it's very easy to to confuse them and hard to discern the difference. But when you have two differently named algorithms, it becomes abundantly clear you know what's the difference. Um, so that's one of the things that I think makes algorithms you know more preferable to for loops. But I would I would pose the question to the three of you, why? How would you convince someone that's coming from either Python or Java or C++ or JavaScript and they're saying, you know, every single one of these languages has for loops and I can go from Java to C++ and, you know, essentially the for loops are roughly the same and I don't, I don't need to, there's no cognitive, you know, barrier to entry of me figuring out what this code does. You know, what do, what do we try, how do we convince folks that it is worth going and learning the algorithms or the primitives of these languages um, so that we can lean on them more than for loops? Well, I would say that part of it is that there's 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 a two-way communication when you when you have somebody who's written the construct of a, a loop, if we're talking about the way these languages do it, for you. One way is you know what they, well they know what you're going to use. So that can make them much more efficient because on their side of things, they know how you're going to interact with this and they can get really good efficiencies. As a person actually writing in the language, they also have a very set group of expectations as to how you're going to use it. So that makes it a lot simpler. You don't have to say, oh, well, partway through this, am I going to uh, branch out this way or that? You, you, you either can or can't do it. And if you do, if there is something you can do, there's a specific way that you can do it. And that means there's a lot of consistency. And I think that makes them easier to read that way because when you go in, you know how the loop works. And by the way it's structured, you know what it's going to do. You're not having a sort of an ad hoc approach to creating the loops. Stephen, Rich, do you got any? People think that maybe you'd lose sight of what, or we're abstracting away what the computer is doing, but actually you have a very concrete view of exactly what the computer's doing and being able to reason about the code uh, just by looking at a line of a few primitives can be a lot simpler than trying to untangle uh, some really complex bespoke uh, piece of code. Guess that does make it more straightforward in some senses. Um, people do worry about: Can you, uh, for a particular problem, for a particular solution, can I then go and implement some of the more obvious uh, performance improvements? Um, for certain types of problems, that does actually become a bit of a challenge in APL. You do want to unpack for a very particular style of problem, um, but for a large swathes of problem. You, the code that you write is going to be performant if you write it the sort of idiomatic APL way, which is something that's quite hard to explain and describe, I guess, especially over voice. But uh... I think I think 
it makes sense, at least to me, what you're saying is that what I'm picturing is a recent problem that now uh, Bob has actually just released a great uh, YouTube video solving it in J, which if we have show notes, I think we do, we should, we should link to that. But on my other podcast, uh, my co-host and I have spent a lot of time talking about is finding the maximum number of ones uh, in a sequence of ones and zeros. And to solve that using for loops and if statements in a language like C++, the resulting code that you get, in my opinion, is more difficult to reason about than the APL or the J solution. Like an APL, you can just use a partitioned and closed with the commute operator, and that's going to immediately give you your nested list of uh, ones in boxes and a nested array. So if you have one, if your starting sequence is one one zero zero one one one, doing a partitioned and closed using that uh, array as the mask itself is going to give you a nested array where the first one has two ones in it and the second nested array has three ones in it. And then from there, all you have to do is a plus reduction. So sum up those values, or you could even take the length, both work, and then just take the maximum. So you've got two different reductions, a max reduction, a sum reduction, and you've also got a partition happening in there. And the equivalent code using just for loops uh, and if statements, I would have to stare at longer um, to understand what it was actually doing. If, if, I didn't, if, that, if, that, if it wasn't in a function with a good name that was explaining what the code was doing, I would be able to figure out much quicker reading the APL code or the J code what the code was doing because it's, it's relying on your primitives that you, you, you know exactly what they do, um, which is I, th- I think what you're trying to communicate is it's, we're not actually going down the you know, abstraction ladder. Using these primitives in these languages is, is going up the ladder, which makes it easier to understand, if I understood what you were trying to say correctly. Yeah, that, that I've heard that described as this idea of subordination of detail as opposed to abstracting it away into obscurity, right? You're, the detail is still visible from the, outs, uh, from the same piece of code, but also the intention at that high level of, of what is it you're actually trying to do. They're sort of visible at the same time, which is something that's, again, not super you don't see it a lot in these other programming languages and it's also quite hard to express without just i don't know showing people lots of examples or having someone actually learn apl uh, for a while so in that case of the example you just gave i guess it also for people with performance concerns i mean you're traversing in that case you've got to traverse the entire uh argument anyway right because you're because there might be a bigger collection of ones further down or something. So in that case, the partition is just fine. Um, what's an example? Well, we know you can short circuit a and reduction or something. Um, but I guess you might not think of that if you were handwriting the uh, handwriting the solution in C by yourself, which I guess is something that Bob alluded to earlier, the idea that the optimizations for certain... Uh, Certain algorithms, certain primitives has already been taken care of for you or continues to be improved on over time. Um, so you're not bogged down by that either. I know I'm not explaining this uh, incredibly lucidly, but um, it really does. It feels like having your cake and eating it, it, and eating it too when it comes to um, working on computational problems. I, I guess I got two answers to your question, Connor. It depends on who, how smart I think the person I'm talking to is. 
You mentioned NSL.com, No Stinking Loops, and that site's owned by Stephen Apter, who's one of the smartest programmers I know and an absolutely gun uh, vector programmer. If I were trying to persuade someone like Stephen Apter to take up an array programming language, which of course is something he did years ago, being as smart as he is, um, I would I would be arguing for how it enables him to think and reason about the code more easily, very much along the lines you were saying. If I was talking to someone like myself, for whom my mental powers are a scarce resource, I'd, I'd simply say I really don't have the mental powers to spare to futz around with counters and loops. I just... <laughs> I just need to stick with the problem. <laughs> that is, uh, I've actually heard that exact um, reasoning on another pod, one of my favorite podcasts, LambdaCast, which is a functional programming podcast. And I'm going to misremember who this quote is originally attributed to, but it's the uh, seven plus or minus two um, number of things that you can hold in your head at one time. And uh, on that podcast, it's, it's one of the first couple episodes, if folks want to check it out, they're talking about how exactly that, um, the number of things that uh, people are capable of reasoning about at one time is limited. And when you're writing a for loop and you've got three different things, you've got the initialization of your index, then you've got the, the criterion for exiting, and then you've got the incrementer, decrementer. That's already like three, three of your seven things, and you haven't even gotten to the body of what you're trying to do. And um, it's interesting that you said that, and that that's actually the second time. And the, the first time I heard it was on a functional programming podcast, which there's probably something to be said there because this idea of not looping is also uh, exists very largely in, in functional programming languages like Haskell. You're, you're not using loops to do reductions. You're using your generic reduction algorithms that are folds and, and whatnot. Rich, I think you, you were going to say something. It's funny you should mention the seven plus and minus two, because I think I read a interview of Arthur Whitney where that number crops up and it's something like a rule of thumb for like a line of APL. How much stuff should you have on there? And the answer might be seven plus or minus two ideas, I think. You know, it's hard to say that they're primitives or whole functions or something else. But yeah, the idea of that being a good sort of unit to stick with. Uh, so instead of like your piece at a time is always an atom, your piece at a time is one thing that might be uh, built up of seven plus or minus two other things, something like this. I thought that was quite a funny coincidence. Or well, maybe not a coincidence, but just a motif in the... Uh, programming intellectualistas world or meta programmers i don't know i wanted to quote whitney too um, he spoke at the 2004 meeting of the british apl association at the royal society in london and he said it is theoretically impossible for a k program to outperform hand-coded c yet k programs routinely outperform and coded C is the what makes it possible is that it's way easier to find your errors in four lines of K than in 400 lines of C. I'm not surprised Arthur would say something like that. And I'm also incredibly jealous that you got to see Arthur speak. Um, cause I know that is a rare, it's a rare occurrence. Um, <laughs> yeah. Arthur, if you're listening, 
you should seriously consider coming on this podcast as what would be hands down probably the best episode that we would produce um certainly the most hotly anticipated yeah <laughs> oh yeah for those that i think it was mentioned in the first episode but arthur is uh the mastermind and the creator of the the k language which then also spawned i think k4 went on to be wordified and uh, became q which is the language that uh, kx the company that steven works for um uh sells and is now becoming K9 in his new company, Shakti. Yeah, yeah. So there's this is probably this is probably a whole other episode. So I'll just I'll briefly <laughs> say an anecdote and then we'll put a pin in it. Uh, but Arthur has created different versions of K. And I think when I actually when I spoke to him and called them versions, he said, No, 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 they're not versions. They're they're different languages. He he thinks of them more as like different dialects of Lisp. Like you've got You've got, you know, Lisp 1 and 1.5 and 2, but then there was Racket and Clojure. And he views, even though they're called K0, 1, 2, 3, I think they skipped 8 because they didn't want to get into a, a lawsuit with Kubernetes um, and went straight to K9. Uh, but he views them as different languages. And every time he starts on a new one, he completely throws out everything. Um, he just, like, wipes everything. And he does the parser, like, the whole thing from scratch each time, which... Uh, if, if you were talking about smart individuals, Arthur's got to be way, way up at the top of the list there, um, along with Stephen Apter. Um, but yeah, we'll, 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 we'll save a whole episode for, for the different Ks, and maybe, yeah, we'll, we'll try and twist Arthur's arm to come on and so he can tell us you know, firsthand. Can I um, bring something up that I would like to get people's thoughts on? I was recently discussing this with a colleague about... Um, so obviously some of the ideas that have been in APL for a long time started to gain a little bit of, you know, become a bit more well-known with the increased popularity of functional pro uh, programming languages, the idea of folds and maps and things like this, um, rather than all these explicit loops. And someone had asked uh, something like, "What's so what's sort of the difference between APL programming and other functional languages and maybe and uh, my colleague suggested maybe it's something like with I mean we neither of us have that much experience in functional languages but in functional languages with functions as the first class citizens are you kind of building up your solutions as modifying the functions themselves until you've reached this thing which is more or less a pipeline that your data then goes through whereas in the APLs you're always thinking about the transformations on the arrays uh, and, the, and the data manipulation piece by piece I, I can answer and then because uh, because I I've done but I'm, I'm actually more curious to hear what Stephen and Bob have to say um, I, I frequently now make these videos where I call I call them on my YouTube channel I heart APL and Haskell and I just I solve them in those two languages because they're my two favorite and I take a look at the other solutions that have been top voted on on LeetCode, and they're always done in Java and C++. And honestly, I think that like the mental model for functional languages and array programming languages is very, very similar. Um, primarily, though, for me, in functional languages, it's function composition. You're just composing functions. So there's, there's a, a problem where it was calculate the uh, sign of an array. So you're given negative, positive, and zeros in an array. And you just take the product and of all those numbers and then take the sign. So if you end up with a positive number, it's one. Negative number, it's negative one. And if you end up with a zero, it's zero. Um, and the way you solve that in APL and Haskell are almost identical. Um, I treated it as if you might overflow if you do the, the reduction first. So convert everything to a one, negative one, or zero, and then do your multiplies reduction, a.k.a. product. 
Um, so an APL that's literally multiplies slash for your product, and then monadic multiplies, which is going to do the, the the sign over your elements. In in Haskell, it's uh, signum, uh, or it's it's uh, product dot map signum. So you're mapping signum, which is the one negative one zero function, and then just taking the product. So those are super super similar. The difference I would say is that. Functional languages are, they more focus on giving you the algorithms and then you having to compose them together to get your solution. APL has this extra layer on top of that where you have this like library of patterns um, that like are purely, uh, at least I have only seen them in these array programming languages. Like the outer product pattern pattern where you do an outer product and then you immediately do a, a reduction row wise to get some count of like the number of characters in a string or something. Um, there's no equivalent of that in like functional programming languages. Like you, you have to build up a specific thing called a counter or, or you would have to build that up. Whereas in APL it's, it's, you know, four or five characters tap, type, type them into your keyboard and, and you get your result. And that's why I, I find APL such an exciting language because I only know a fraction of these patterns. And the more and more you study it, like the more patterns and idioms you start to see. And every, every once in a while you stumble across one and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. Like I would have never thought of this in a language like Python or C++. Um, but I, I will defer. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear Stephen and Bob's your answers. Bob? Well, I think part of it, and, and this sort of goes a little bit back to Richard's um, what Richard was talking about as well, there's a level at which you're composing when you're using functional languages. And then with APL or array languages, you're really looking at transformations. And I think the difference in my head is rather than composing, which is putting things together, quite often when I get into it, I'm taking things apart to focus on how I can make that transformation cleaner. So I'm actually removing things whenever I can. And I don't get the sense if your your language is based on composition, it's a really different mindset to start subtracting things. Whereas I think my sense of the array language is because you're looking at a transformation, you're always focusing on what that data is doing. You're always trying to make that as simple as you can. So you're, if there's a way I get, you know, I, I, a number of times I've done roundabout loops and got around going, hey, I could have done this and just remove that whole string of transformations because suddenly it appeared to me, well, all I'm trying to do is move from A to B. I don't have to go through D, E, F and all these other ones. I just go A, B, to, I've done. Okay, so that but that's done. Now I've taken this whole process and it's just down to one step. And I think it's focusing on the transformations and the data that sort of opens my mind up to that. While you were saying that, uh, <laughs> this might be completely off, but I, I was thinking of... Um the scene from Iron Man, the first Iron Man, where he's designing his Iron Man suit with like a holographic, uh, I don't know, system. And he like uses his hands to like blow all the components up and then like throw a couple away and then shrink it back down. Like that's what I was, and that's how I feel when I, I'm programming an array programming language. You're just staring at all the components, like the the primitive algorithms. It's a scanner, it's a reduction, it's a partition. Um, and you have the ability to just look at it, explode it, remove a couple, um, shrink it back down, and like, there's nothing even remotely close to that, uh, that kind of feeling when you're coding in C++. I love C++, but um, there's no Iron Man uh, holographic feeling when you're, when you're coding that way. Yeah, well, did someone say on, a comment on one of your videos, Connor, that APL looks like what programming is portrayed as in movies? <laughs> a little bit. 
<laughs> well, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing because movies, a lot of the times, uh, <laughs> if you pause it on the screen, it uh, you're going, what is going on there? So I know we're, we're, we had sort of two topics that we wanted to touch on, and I think we've sort of alluded a little bit to it, but maybe we should try and more explicitly tackle the, the second one, which is um, how, do we, how do we get folks interested, or not interested, but for folks that are interested and that want to learn, um, what's the best way to go about it? Do we recommend a single language? Is it, is it, is it Q? Is it, is, it, is it J? Is it APL? Um, That's a different episode, Connor. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Eight array languages face off. <laughs> there can be only one. <laughs> we we won't uh, we won't recommend which one. But for those that are interested in exploring the paradigm, um, what are you know? I know Stephen, you had some thoughts because you've been spending some time thinking about you know, in this day and age, you know, it's it's no longer the '60s and the '70s when APL was sort of uh, had been developed and there was a ton of excitement around and uh, excitement around it. Um, it's a different it's a different time now and there's a hundred languages to choose from. So Well, I think it's the first thing that comes to my mind is that I was completely deceived in the in the seventies when I encountered APL. Uh I thought it was a wonderful language, I still do. Uh I and my colleagues thought that everybody we're working with in APL um was in there because it was a brilliant language. Now in the nineteen seventies APL time-sharing systems provided personal computing before there were personal computers. And that was a big deal. You could sit in front of a keyboard and do your budgets, and there were no, um, there were no graphical user interfaces. There was no Excel, no spreadsheets, but you could sit in front of a keyboard and do your budgets or whatever it is you needed to do. Uh, when personal computing and personal computers came along, the people who were um, doing their budgets and stuff all moved onto them. It was way cheaper. And when you got screens and graphical user interfaces, a lot easier to use. And in a, in a sense, the tide went out and we lost all the people who were there just in order to get what APL made possible. And there was a minority of us left saying, what a great language this is. <laughs> and, you know, we were still developing, still doing systems. It still, it still is a great language. And I think I see a similar pattern with Q. Most of the people I know doing um, Q development these days are doing it because of what it provides access to. So, uh, we should definitely come back to do the array languages face off at some <laughs> at some other time. But probably, if you're thinking about learning a language, you probably already know which one you're interested in because of what it provides access to. How do you start? Well, it's fairly easy to get started. Um, there's all kinds of intros, um, either workshops or material you can look at online. Uh, and then I've come to the conclusion something quite, um, there's really quite an obstacle for solo students. And the reason it's there is that for most people who need to get something done in whichever language, you do an intro and then you get into the pool with other people who are already using the language. 
I was referring earlier to that loopless programming. Hey, look, Mark, no hands. I'm using an each instead of a instead of a for loop. And then the process of learning the language more thoroughly, where someone comes along and shows you, no, actually the primitives will do that iteration. You can do that, this, that, or the other much more economically with whatever expression. When I consult my experience, I realized I learned almost all I know about APL from people around me. Most of the people I know who know the languages learn from people around them. I know very few people who learn the languages to any significant extent, excuse me, just from books or studying online material. Programming languages flourish the same way that human languages do amongst people who use them. I'll admit there are exceptions, but here's my premise. Most people learn these languages within a linguistic community. Now, look at the experience of the last 25, 30 years of people using K and, and Q. Go through an intro and then you move on to work in an office with people around you using the language. In the KX business, that would be either the KX companies um, or our clients. If you're what I'm coming to call outside the gates, outside the city gates, you are struggling to learn the language because there's no one around you to show you, oh, this is an easier way to do this or that. There's limited online resources. In the this new pandemic distributed world, I think we're going to have to learn how to teach the array paradigm, vector programming, how to get a thorough grasp of the syntax of the, of the language, not just what you sort of pick up from what you see. We're going to have to learn how to teach that. We're going to have to teach it online. And it's a new thing. I don't think we've ever actually had to do this before because we've been learning in real life communities. My new thought for the week. <laughs> It's it's interesting that you left it like right at that point online communities because I think that's exactly where the learning goes on now in the array languages. When I think about Jay, um, if I was giving somebody advice, um, there are some really good um, fundamental documents. I mentioned Henry Rich's J for C programmers. It's so comprehensive and it's written from the basis of a procedural language, which a lot of people already have access to understanding. So that's a really good document. There are others. You, if you go on the J software site, you'll find others. But the key thing, I think, is to get involved with the online forums. Because if you're watching the online forums, like this week, um, there was two really big sort of discussions going on back and forth. And there were these really, really top-end programmers, the first one um, was trying to figure out how to track uh, stock um, variations. And it was based on a real problem and then broken down to a simple subset. And then they took this and then they basically they riffed back and forth through the, the emails or the messages going back and forth. We'll try it this way, try it this way. No, no, if you do this, this is, this is the failure here. And you could actually watch, um, it was... Uh, Raul Miller was one of them. I can't remember who the other person was. My apologies to the other person because it was really neat watching them back and forth building this kind of code that you 
you, all you need to do is just read through the thread. You can see them as they're coming up with problems, as they're solving the problems. It gives you insight into how they think. And then the second big problem was somebody came on and said they were trying to translate um, Aaron Chu's um, uh, tree building algorithm into J. And they were having problems with it. They couldn't get the depth thing working. And somebody, they, this went on for a couple of days, actually, people suggesting things. And then somebody broke it. And when they broke it, suddenly everybody could do it. And they were looking to optimize it. And it was just fascinating to watch them go through that process. And so I'm not saying if you if you got into the middle of that, you'd say, oh, I know what's going on now. But if you have done some background reading, and I recently heard some, uh, a metaphor saying, if you're, if you're trying to do something without doing background reading, without getting the concepts, it's like learning to play air guitar. You know all the moves, you just don't know really what you're doing and there's no music coming out. Um, and I thought that was really you know, you're going to have to spend some time getting the concepts. You're going to have to spend some time doing some reading. But then as soon as you start to understand this stuff, hop on those kind of forums. And the J forums are good for that. I think, is it is it APL Orchard, uh, Richard? is the Yeah, that... I feel good to me. I was just going to do some flat out plugs of uh, various resources because this is what Stephen described as a problem we're very aware of where if you get to a certain point, you've been learning APL and then you're like, oh, how do I just do, I want to do this thing. How do I do it? And you ask an experienced APLer and usually you'll get, you know, uh, a whole you know, bunch of really good answers. But the question is like, how do we get that knowledge out of the experienced APLers heads and out into, into the internet or whatever forums where people can get access to it without having to literally ask people, um, on that note. So what's coming out? So Rodrigo Girasaral, who is working for Dialogue Revamping, the Mastering Dialogue book, which is sort of an excellent, quite comprehensive resource. Um, a guy who, so you mentioned the APL Orchard, you can access that through the URL apl.chat. Um, and that's just a very lively Stack Exchange uh, message forum thread. It's very active. So you'll if you ask questions there, you'll get answers definitely same day most of the time. Um, a user of the orchard called Stefan Kruger has written a really excellent, uh, introduction to, to APL, I guess, specifically dialogue APL. Um, the reason it's not published quite yet is because it references one of the problems from this year's, uh, APL problem solving competition. So he's waiting for that to finish before he publishes it. Uh, and then I myself, I'm working on the URL is course.dialogue.com and that's kind of supposed to get you hands-on, uh, working with APL basically straight from the beginning and try to as quickly as possible, get you over some of those initial gotchas, um, and things that people find a little bit confusing when they start learning. But then if you take any of those resources, um, to get you started and you, then as you've mentioned, Bob, once you have questions, talking to humans is still, uh, by far one of the best ways to get answers. So APL.chat is a really excellent way to get those answers. This is very very interesting because I'm hearing the same thing from um, from you both. Background reading, the study resources, mastering the materials essential, but the learning also is a collaborative experience. We need to we need to generate and foster those collaborative experiences. There's a, a famous 
a motivational speaker, I, I doubt he's still around, um, but he was known in his time as Charlie Tremendous Jones. You can find a celebrated quote from him uh, on the internet. Uh, it says, five years from now, you will be the same person, the same person you are now, apart from the people you meet and the books you read, books you read, the people you meet. Yep, that's definitely uh, what there's some other version of that where you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, that, that kind of thing where, um, so you should choose those five people carefully. Uh, and th that five people evolves over time, right? So it's basically speaks to exactly what that, that quote is saying. The, the one link I was going to add on top of this, and I'm not sure if there's actually a J or a Q equivalent. Um, and if not, I would, I would highly recommend those communities, uh, thinking about setting something up, um, like it is, uh, try apl.org. Um, that is actually how I fell into the APL rabbit hole. There's a much longer story, but uh, at that point in time where I wanted to go and take it for a spin um, and just be like, oh, you know, let, let's go and see what APL is all about. Uh, I knew that most languages, there's a lot of popular websites like REPL.IT and like JDoodle um, and Coding Grounds that just, they have like 50 plus different languages that you can just like write code and run in the browser. Um, and so that's typically the first place that I try and go. Cause I don't, you know, I, I have nightmares from back in university of trying to get like C plus plus up and running on my computer. And, uh, these days you don't typically have to do that. You can just go to some browser and they've got a compiler running in the background on some other box and you just write hello world and it works. Um, and so try uh, was fantastic for that. I, I went there. It has all of the symbols as like a clickable keyboard at the top to get started. And so very quickly it shows the keyboard shortcut to start typing them in yourself. But as you have no idea, how do I type the circle with a line through it? Um, <laughs> like, I don't know that as a beginner. Um, and that's the J and J and Q will have an advantage over, over that link in that regard. Cause it's just ASCII. So like you, even if you don't know what it means, you can, you can still figure out what to type. Um, and Q actually has words. So, uh, that's, that's potentially even the easiest to get started with, but um, you can very quickly, you know, type your first line, like just type plus slash iota five and, you know, start with iota five and then add the plus slash. And for me, that already is just like, oh my goodness, like that would have been, that would have been like four forty characters in C plus plus. Like I'm already, I'm already typing a fraction of what I would in the language that I know. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure. Is there like a, a try J or a try Q, uh, website that we can also either put in the show notes or mention? Well, the only one I can think of, and, and there's not one explicitly uh, that is for J, but it, it's tio.run, which is try it online. And J is one of the languages you can go in and do that with. I don't like their interface, and I'm sure, you know, we can do better. <laughs> um, and I, I agree with you. Uh, TriAPL try is, I have found, a really good site. In fact, coming early on, I did a little bit of APL years and years ago and then ended up going over to J. But... I was reintroducing myself to uh, to APL with uh, Try APL. It's really good. Try APL is absolutely brilliant. Yes, you're, you're right. We use something a little bit like it in our training courses, uh, running uh, Q behind Python and um, Jupyter Notebooks. But um, uh, we, we don't have a public interface like that. It's been talked about. I'm impressed by your uh, by you, what you say about it. I'm going to take that back. See if we can get something done. I think, yeah, I don't think Q is on tio.run, but I definitely know that there's a couple different versions of K because um, there's, I know OK and Kona are some 
implementations that are based on, I think, K7. Um, maybe one of them's K4. Um, so I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's there anymore. But once a while ago, maybe last year, I saw some version of K that was um, done in WebAssembly. So it was just like you just went to this URL. It was in your browser, running natively in your browser, right there. I think it's been taken down now, but that was really cool. Just the console, just straight there. That's your whole browser window. Yeah. And and to be fair, I think downloading um, downloading Q K J and dialog APL or any other APLs, it's 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 not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but definitely, I just think as a starting point, uh, there's a way lower barrier to entry if we can just send people a, a URL that they click and then they literally start typing. Um, and like the the lower that barrier to entry is, I think the the more people we can get hooked on being like, holy smokes, it, I typed five things and I I did some massive computation that um, would be non-trivial in sort of a, another language. I think we have those links on uh, under resources on uh, arraycast.com. So if people are interested, they can go over there and take a look and see what we put together in addition to whatever show notes we put on with this episode. And uh, I guess maybe, maybe a, a good thing to start to close out on... Um, we talked a bit about community and how currently that is maybe the best way. And, and I can speak to that. Um, I, I think on average, I'm a more curious person than, than the, the average individual. Uh, so I will tend to, you know, just type away until things start to work. Uh, but it is at certain points, like I would go to APL Orchard and be like, I've been trying to figure this out for four hours. And then sure enough, someone just is like, oh, you're just missing a semicolon in the brackets. It changes the indexing. indexing. And I'm like, oh, how would I have known that? And they're like, yeah, that's not the best. Um, but yeah, the APL Orchard is fantastic. So going forward, are we going to, you know, whether it's around this podcast or are we going to try and set up some kind of place, whether that's a Slack or a Discord? Or I know, Stephen, at one point you mentioned that we you might be setting something up. Uh, where should people go to ask questions um, of us or of just, you know, it's this is sort of, this is a cross community podcast, right? It's not just for APL. It's not just for J. It's not just for Q. Um, do we have that yet or do we need to set that up? Oh, a fair shout on that. Well, there is one thing that exists. I'm not going to necessarily recommend this as the place going forward, but there's a subreddit r slash APLJK where I guess due to the uh, relatively niche small audience of each of the individual languages they've, they've banded together for this subreddit. And uh, that's been reasonably active recently. So, I mean, I know I look at it. So, did, did we post our first episode on, on that subreddit? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we're we're tracking well. Okay. <laughs> it was one so, of the, part of the feedback we got. So there's a, there's a starting point. If you do have questions or comments or feedback, uh, definitely check out that subreddit. It sounds like we'll be posting all the episodes there. Um, Should I also mention one other community uh, activity that's happening soon? Is this an appropriate time to stick that in? Sure, yeah. Uh, Adam Brzezewski, who was on the first episode of the podcast, is, I, I guess he's hosting it. He's certainly involved in organizing it. Um, a new meetup called APL Campfire. APL has a fairly rich history. It's like quite an old language. And uh, this this particular meetup is for people um, to come and give their stories, you know, about their APL experience. Um so that's going to be the next meetup is Sunday, the 6th of June, uh, 6 p.m. UTC. And that's going to be via Zoom. 
but I'm guessing... Ah, yes. To find out uh, how to join, you can go to apl.wiki forward slash campfire. Uh, so that's a nice straightforward URL if you want to hear some of the sort of historical context around APL, which is, we've heard a little bit alluded to uh, alluded to a little bit today, but it's really fascinating generally. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. I will definitely be tuning in if, if I am free. And I would just say with uh, one one thing that I found about the uh, the different communities is is I think everybody who studies these languages knows they can be difficult and knows that they can be challenging as has felt those challenges personally at different times. I found people really, really friendly and open and willing to explain things. I've, I've just I've been amazed at that is how much of that goes on. And as Stephen talked about, I think that's because that's in the culture of how you learn. And if somebody else has taken the time to work with you and teach you things, you just feel naturally you're going to give back and you're going to explain things to people who don't know quite as well. And I, I found that really a positive thing about the the languages and it's it's just in that culture. So there's nothing wrong with going on these sites on, the, on a forum or anything and just lurking. I think that's not a bad idea. You start to see what's going on. But don't be afraid of asking questions because everybody was there once. I think there's there's no better way to end it than that. So I'll once again thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, I know at the tail end we went through a ton of links. So um, if you lost track, just be sure to check out the show notes. They'll all be there uh, if you want to get started and start exploring these languages. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Happy array programming. Happy array programming. <laughs>